Welcome to Hadar's Web, a podcast featuring community conversations on spirituality, healing, justice, and art. My name is Hadar Cohen. I am your host, and I am delighted to invite you to my relational web. Welcome. Today's guest is my dear friend Maya. Maya June Mansour is an artist originally from Nashville, Tennessee, with roots in Black America, Iran, and Palestine. Her work uses photography and written word to explore beauty and identity. Welcome, Maya. So happy to have you on my podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm so excited. This is finally happening. Yeah, me too. And I like to start my podcast by asking people how we first got connected and we have a special story (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally yeah it's so funny I feel like you know I've known each other since 2020 and every time we meet people and we're out together and they ask how we met each other there's like the short version which is that we used to live together and then there's the long version which is that we did this really like intense fellowship together throughout the whole pandemic quarantine called Abrahamic House yeah and you know we met i guess in march 2020 pretty much yeah we moved in not knowing that there was going to be a pandemic starting this fellowship together and all of a sudden we were trapped (laughs) in a house in koreatown in los angeles (laughs) yeah i know it was such an intense time and it's so funny because when you explain abrahamic house where it's this idea that there's people of different faiths living in the same house together everyone's always like uh, that sounds like a reality show yeah. <laughs> but um there were no cameras it was just us uh, <laughs> roughing out the quarantine <laughs> together but I think it was such a sweet experience to in the end to like get to know each other and our other two roommates um through such a crazy time in human history <laughs> definitely and I remember our orientation and we just went around and we it was the first night um, and we just shared a little bit about ourselves and I remember I don't remember your exact words but you said something about the relationship between beauty and God Mm. and I was just like wow I feel so seen (laughs) (laughs) and just how yeah to relate to divinity through this lens of beauty um, was something that I always felt so deeply in my life, but I always felt was kind of strange to talk to other people about it, mm. usually because they had weird constructions around what beauty is or who God is. And um, that was kind of the first moment where I was like, wow, I know she's going to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's so funny. I remember we had this exercise where we all had to bring something, of, like an item or an object that we feel like represented us. And I remember you were sharing your object and it was something that belonged to your grandfather. And you talked so much about your legacy and your lineage and I just was so like so struck by that and I remember thinking like wow like I think so much about my background and where I come from but I never really thought about the word lineage so much until I heard you saying it all the time (laughs) and like yeah it's so funny we both have memories from that first night we all met each other yeah and I think that is also a really deep connection that we both have is that we each have such unique and complex identities yeah and um yeah I was wondering if you would want to share with our audience who you are what is your identity like this intersection of so many different lineages yeah totally I feel like when people ask this like for me it's easiest to just kind of go with like explaining my mom's side and then my dad's side and then I'm kind of a product of the two of those things so My mom is black, American. She's originally from the Midwest. Um, She's definitely a child of the Great Migration. Both of my grandparents are from the South and then migrated up to the Midwest, which is where my mom and her four siblings were born. And then um, she ended up moving to Tennessee when she married my dad, who's originally from Tehran and he is Persian and Palestinian, so my grandfather was actually born in Haifa, 
Palestine and then around the time that the war happened he you know basically was told to go back to where he came from in a sense um so ancestrally um he had some ancestors that were Persian and so ended up immigrating to Iran right before 48 um, but the reason that he was told to leave the country is because he was Baha'i and Baha'is um, weren't super welcome in Palestine but I think that there was kind of this growing sense that as the war was about to happen they were going to become even less welcome so um, that's kind of his story and then he moved to Iran and married my grandmother who her name is Iran Docht which I think is so funny because it means daughter of Iran <laughs> which I think is so funny because she married someone who was Palestinian <laughs> not Iranian but um my dad and his siblings were raised in Iran and then my dad immigrated to the states for college and while he was here the revolution in the 70s happened in Iran and he basically got a letter from his dad saying um don't come back home it's not safe for us as Baha'is here anymore and so um, my dad stayed in this rural town in Tennessee where he ended up in college and then um, just through some mutual friends that he grew up with in Iran who also immigrated to the States, that's how he met my mom and then they had me in Tennessee. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I love that. So many different lineages and so many different experiences too, experiences of oppression, of marginalization. And yeah, I'm curious, either now or like also growing up like what how did you weave in all this complex identity was it always like well i'm this first and i'm that second or they were all together in one i'm asking because i have this struggle yeah <laughs> i know i feel like we have a similar so we're doing a similar dance i think growing up like i really feel like the most important identity if you're going to frame it that way in our household was our religious identity so so much of my education growing up was through this spiritual lens of the Baha'i faith. And I feel like it wasn't really until I was in high school where I started really trying to think critically about coming from all these different places and being black in the South and kind of having that lineage. And then also being Middle Eastern and growing up, like really, really feeling that quintessential child of immigrant experience where you're kind of like, code switching between like the language that you your parents might speak or the English with the accent that your parents might speak and then the English that your peers speak when you're in school um so I don't know I think that I mean maybe this is just kind of like psychological development but I wasn't really thinking about place as much until I was a little bit older but I will say when I was a kid I really did want to go to Iran like, I remember being really young and being like, why can't we go? And for those of you that don't know, Baha'is can't really travel safely in and out of Iran. And Baha'is are a persecuted religious minority in Iran. And so that was always a barrier. So I think that's another reason I really related to you, Hadar, when I first met you, is that we share this experience of exile and a lot of your work around, your art is around exile. And I think that um, that's something like, Again, that language of exile, I never really used that to describe our state of being and my family, but it's the perfect word to describe what's going on. And I really just appreciate how you're able to like put words to these really complicated experiences. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think the other thing we share is also coming from religions that are minority religions in the world, right? Like small religions yeah. um, between Judaism and Baha'i faith. Um, you know, in some ways we have similar networks. Like that's one of the things that I love living with you and learning about Baha'is is like how well connected everyone is and how, um, yeah, how much you all know each other and you have all these community times and these, these like social networks of care that I think come from being a minority religion. And, you yeah. know, I think that just through being friends with you or just every time I try to bring up Baha'i faith, either in the U.S. context or even in the Middle East context, there's so much misinformation and miseducation about yeah. it, you know, or even what that religion is or denial of the oppression or just so many different things. And um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just share with our audience as maybe an educational moment <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, um, totally. A little bit more about the Baha'i faith. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it on the head. Like, you know, we're both religious minorities over here and back home. And I think that's something that I found like a lot of solace in, in our friendship too, because it's such a different experience than like our Muslim friends, right? Who are in the minority here and, and clearly experience Islamophobia and oppression in the States. And then their experience back home in the Middle East just looks so different because Islam is the majority religion. Um, and I think growing up like a really common misconception that I would hear when I would say that I'm Baha'i is that people would think that Baha'is are like an offshoot of Islam, which is incorrect. And um, it's actually against Baha'i law to create an offshoot. So there's just one Baha'i faith. There's no like um, no different sect. Or it's like, oh, like the Church of Christ or Baptist or Catholic, like we don't have that. Um, but just generally, Baha'is believe that there's one God and that God sends different messengers throughout time to kind of um, update the spiritual teachings. So we kind of believe that in the same sense that technology and our material world advances, our spiritual understanding has to advance as well. And so um, it's this concept called progressive revelation where it's like um, God is continually progressively revealing himself in more complicated and advanced ways throughout time and so Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah is the most recent prophet from God that came about 200 years ago to Persia which is now modern day Iran and he went through this series of exiles throughout the region through what is now Iraq and in Turkey um, and there's um, still kind of that history of exile and oppression for Baha'is in that region. So a lot of the Baha'is in the States are refugees technically um, because we're not able to go back home to the countries that maybe we were born in or our parents were born in. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I love what you were sharing about um, the lens around how the spiritual teachings are updated in different generations to tend to the times. I think that's so beautiful and so potent. And, you know, I'm also just struck that we are recording this podcast during one of um i think the coolest baha'i holidays (laughs) just because i'm really interested in time and how different people measure time and i think that also you know that is also another thing that we had to kind of learn together through abrahamic (laughs) house is that right different people have different calendar systems they count time differently based on their religion based on their faith and um especially being in the u.s it's kind of you know, the Western calendar is very much like a Christian calendar, mm. um, but there's so many different ways of counting time. And um, this holiday, this Baha'i holiday, Bayamiha, I think is so beautiful because it kind of shows around um, the ways, yeah, we're tracking time. So, yeah, yeah, totally. I can talk about Ayamiha. So, Ayamiha translated into English means days of Ha. Um, And it's typically three or four days, depending on the year, that are kind of seen as a time outside of time. And that's because the Baha'i calendar is made up of 19 months, and each month is 19 days. And so if you do the math, that still leaves um, these three or four days, depending on if it's a leap year or not, um, that are outside of those months. And so these days of ha, ha is a letter in the Arabic alphabet, are seen as this time outside of time since they don't fall in any of the months. And so they're kind of used as this period where Baha'is are, um, it's kind of like Baha'i Christmas, but not in the Western, like materialistic capitalist sense. But um, it's where we are supposed to like be joyful and be in service to other people. And so, it's really typical for there to be like an Ayamiha service project or something like that. Um, so, but people grow up celebrating really, really differently. Growing up when I was a kid, my mom used to do an Ayamiha scavenger hunt in our house. And so she would um, put all these presents and clues around our house and I would have to like find out all these riddles to find my Ayamiha presents. So it's definitely our main gift giving holiday, but there's really 
um, a lot of room for various tradition in the Baha'i faith, so there's not one way to celebrate um, a Yamiha, but service is normally like at the forefront. I love that. Yeah. And that was the thing that was also so cool about Abrahamic House is just getting to practice together mm-hmm. the different holidays. And yeah. it was so, for me, it was so emotional because I feel like that is how my ancestors used to live in Jerusalem, of just like celebrating so many holidays together. It's like mm-hmm. these people have this holiday and these people have this holiday and we just show up for all these celebrations. Yeah. And, um, I'm curious also to know, like, you know, you come from such a devoted faith and um, with this kind of teaching around right spiritual revelation or progressive revelation over time, what is your relationship to spirituality now? Like, mm-hmm. how has that evolved for you? And um, yeah, I mean, even I feel like since the Abrahamic days, it's like there's been so much um, evolution. And I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you relate to your own spirituality these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think like I'm really unlucky. I'm really lucky in that. I was raised by my mom who kind of comes from this really fundamentalist Christian background and so she wasn't allowed to learn about other religions and she wasn't really allowed to ask questions at her church growing up and so when she was raising me she was really really adamant that I was going to learn about other faith backgrounds and beliefs and like asking questions was really encouraged and so I think now I'm at this place personally in my spiritual journey where I'm starting to really feel grateful that I am so comfortable asking questions and like maybe stepping away from my more religious side and diving deeper into my personal spirituality and I I started meditating really um kind of like rigorously I guess you would say a couple of years ago and I found so much joy in that and it's I feel really grateful and it's so special to have kind of this foundation of the Baha'i teachings that I was brought up in as I am kind of going off and doing my own thing now and there's definitely been moments where I really really resonate with Baha'i prayers and like our scripture and then there's maybe times where I don't as much and I think that there's so much grace that I've afforded myself and that I have been afforded in that in my community I've never felt ostracized or anything like that but um but yeah I do think that being an Abrahamic house and learning more about Jewish tradition and all the other faiths that we were around during our time there really really was super helpful for me and also just opened me up to the way that you guys all practice and how it's all so different and we I think something that was really great is that we would all kind of understand that just because you're Jewish, like you're not this ambassador for all Jewish people and you're not this representative where everyone is going to act the same way that you act or practice the same way you practice. And I think that that made me even feel more comfortable in like moving that way myself and seeing myself in that way. Because I do think that as a religious minority, maybe when you're like the only Jewish person that someone's ever met, you do feel that pressure too kind of be the perfect representative of your faith yeah and so it was nice where in a sense we were kind of all representing our faiths in Abrahamic house but we all kind of let ourselves um have that religious diversity as well yeah and I, I'm remembering um this teaching you shared with us from the Baha'i faith around how you can recognize a Baha'i person by the way that they walk Mm. And the way that they show up in the world, yeah. you know, because it's, it's, um, we have actually a similar teaching in Judaism that the word for Jewish law is halacha, which comes from walking. Mm. It's like something that you walk with, you know, it's yeah. an embodied practice, it's a lived reality, and um, also related to social justice or to service or to how you're showing up with other people. So, you know, this place where faith isn't necessarily just like this personal experience, but also what are you embodying for the world? Um, totally yeah like that distinction where someone should kind of know by the way you show up in the world like you said that this person is um is different or they're they're walking and moving differently yeah yeah and I know you have been doing so much really (laughs) cool work at the intersection of art and justice and Gosh, there's so many different angles that I can even ask this question, but maybe I'll just start by asking about that because that feels really related, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we share this where it's like 
we're both very deeply spiritual people, but sometimes our spirituality is expressed through art making or through justice work or through these different lenses. Um, Yeah, so I don't even know which project to begin asking you about because you do so much. (laughs) Yeah, totally. No, I can start um, by talking maybe about Black Image Center. That's kind of like, you know, I have so many babies, but I feel like that's top of mind right now because we're on the last day of Black History Month, and we've just been so busy at Black Image Center the last month. Um, But yeah, Black Image Center is a community photography space that I started in 2020. I came together with a group of six Black photographers based in LA, and we really came together over this desire to have a space for Black people to learn about photography and for Black photographers to come together and kind of break bread together and learn from each other in a really um, kind of low-key way that's not super industry or like networky or um, kind of like a lot of the spaces that we see in the creative industry in the city of LA. Um, And we came together during the summer of 2020, which, you know, was really crazy for everyone with the pandemic. And so we um, wanted to hold space together but with the pandemic it just kind of became this thing where we didn't know how comfortable people would be and so we waited a couple of years and so this past May in 2022 we found a brick and mortar and opened our doors and we offer like a pretty wide variety of services and educational opportunities for our community so people can come and get their portrait taken they can get their family photos scanned and archived and digitized Um, we've had different technical workshops on how to take photos and lighting workshops and things like that art classes Um, and it's been a really beautiful thing especially since we've opened the doors to our physical space like the amount of people that have come through and just people that have been so invested in building this community with us it's been really sweet and really touching and I think that so much of my why for Black Image Center is that spiritual background that I do have that puts such a strong emphasis on service and justice and I think that I wouldn't really be where I am today with Black Image Center without that background that I do have And even though it's like a pretty a-religious space, like for me, it does really feel like I'm kind of fulfilling like a spiritual duty by um, holding community and contributing to my community in that way. Um, And I guess that kind of naturally transitions into my own photography practice where kind of like you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation where I really do see beauty as a spiritual attribute that does manifest itself physically in this world that we can see but I feel like a lot of my work is kind of trying to pull out this spiritual quality of beauty in places that um, one might not think of originally or off the top of their head or even if it is a really beautiful photo like trying to really dig deeper into what are the spiritual implications of beauty you know Um, And so a lot of my photo practice right now is based in portraiture. So I take a lot of pictures of people. And right now I'm in the process of working on a self-portrait practice that's kind of exploring my healing journey in my body because I've gone through so much with my body (laughs) in my life and just really digging deeper into kind of the different phases of my healing journey and the different emotions that come up when I think about this um all the things that I've gone through with my health and with my body and especially my reproductive health too um and so yeah it's been really fun I've always loved taking self-portraits and so it's been fun to really just dive deeper into the practice of self-portraiture and I recently got a grant from Google Um, to develop the project even more so for the last six months I've been a part of the Google Image Equity Fellowship um, and that's coming to an end in 10 days actually my photos are due (laughs) on March 10th so I'm getting ready to kind of put the finishing touches on things and make my final selects and put titles on everything and then in May my cohort is having a group show in New York and I'm really really excited for that it's going to be kind of my first time presenting 
um, a preview of this project and the series of self-portraits and yeah I feel kind of in a way like it's a coming out like I'm kind of coming out as a even though I've always been an artist I've always been a photographer it feels like this moment where I'm kind of like and reintroducing myself to the world in this phase of my life. I love that. <laughs> and I can attest that you're a brilliant photographer. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I have many photos that you've taken of me. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you recently also had an art show where you um, showed one of your photos. And one of the things that you said there was around how everyone deserves to have their own portrait. Yeah. And I was just, it was something that I've been reflecting on around how... Um, yeah, I mean, also just through witnessing you through our friendship of just, mm-hmm. yeah, photo- being a photographer is such a big part of your identity and your work and how much that really touches into all the different things that we were talking about, which mm-hmm. is like, how do you see someone? How do they see themselves? Like, yeah. how is their story being told? Who's mm-hmm. telling the story? Do they have the rights to their own story? Do they have the rights to their own image? You yeah. know, and like... Um, what are the constructions we have around how we see different groups of people and how do we break them and have more authentic views, authentic images, authentic representation? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I feel like um, I kind of had this breakthrough where I realized that having a photo of yourself is a basic human right. When I was in college and I was in this program called Gateways for Incarcerated Youth, and I was doing all this carceral work and I was going into like the local juvie in the town that I went to college every week. And I was, um, I think my role, I was like a peer mentor or something. And I was um, interacting with all these guys that were my age that were incarcerated. And I was bringing my computer in because we were working on this project together. And there was this moment where they were on my computer and they opened the photo booth and they were so excited to like, take those pictures of themselves and it was this thing where you know you totally take it for granted just like having photo booth on your computer reminded me of in middle school when you would like go to the mall and stop by the apple store and take those photos of yourself in the apple store I feel like so many so many of my friends have that on their Facebook like those photos from the mall apple store on that photo booth and it ended up being this thing that we actually all got in trouble for because they're not supposed to have photos of themselves. And that's a super hyper-regulated part of the incarcerated experience in America is that um, they're not allowed to have photos of themselves and unless it's um, a photographer that the prison has brought in and they have approved backdrops and clothes and they only get one and it's just this thing that I had never really thought about but then I got this book by this publication called Aperture called Prison Nation which has a lot of really incredible thought um, and really amazing writing on the topic but I yeah I just remember like we all everyone you know I got in trouble they got in trouble for um, letting them take these photos on my computer and it just felt so wrong to me and I that experience really stuck with me because I just knew that there was nothing wrong with what like that act was so innocent and so genuine and they deserved that in the world you know when they um when they were taking those photos it just was not it wasn't making anything wrong there was nothing wrong about that and I um yeah that really stuck with me and I really do believe that having a photo of yourself that you feel like represents you even if it's just a silly photo booth photo is something that everyone in the world deserves because having that photo is proof that you were here Mm -hmm. and we really take that for granted especially having iPhones and camera phones and all this technology and there's kind of this on the outside of prisons this inundation where there's too many photos of us and we're being surveilled and we don't want to be and everyone's got a selfie of you on their phone and at every event it's like let's take a picture because we want that proof that this happened and that we were here together and that we were friends and that documentation and that archive is I think a part of our nature that we want to preserve these moments and these memories and so I think that having that interaction and that experience of that situation really is going to stick with me for the rest of my life And then that combined with this teaching from the Baha'i faith that I grew up hearing, but also don't really think that it clicked until I got a little older, that um, 
it's this teaching that compares black people in society to the people of the eye and the body of humanity and it draws this comparison and kind of expresses that the eye is where the truth is revealed to the body and it's like one of our our senses right it's where we get these um sensory informations where that's like an inherent truth and so really thinking about my position as a black person and then so i'm thinking about okay like if i have this position in my community and my society of the revealer of truth and then i have this um proclivity or this um like attraction to photography and there's so many um, connections you can draw between a camera and an eye like really using my position as a photographer as a tool for telling the truth and seeing that beauty but also kind of leaning into that notion that everyone does deserve this photo of them that is telling the truth and represents them in the way that they feel is truthful yeah and what I'm hearing from what you're saying around this notion of telling the truth it's like yeah, that comes from that justice place around reclaiming the authentic reality, the authentic stories. And it also comes from a very spiritual place around like, what is the truth of who we are, right? Like, how do we return to who we are as people, who we are as souls, who we are in our spiritual evolution? Yeah. Um, and I think this is something that we both deeply share is this like weaving between spirituality, justice, and art. And I think I've um, benefited so much from our friendship because we both share those intersections and sometimes it's really hard out in the world where it's like <laughs> people are only in one camp yeah, right and, totally um just that weaving of all three and it makes so much sense right when you break it down when you talk about it in the ways that you do it's um it's so much more holistic and mm. i feel like now i'm using like these la buzzwords <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it does yeah, feel that it's, way it's, <laughs> cold pressed yeah. cold pressed exactly yeah like sold in Irwan yeah <laughs> oh my gosh yeah I appreciate that it's nice to also be in community with someone else and have such a deep friendship with someone else who does see that spiritual side because I do feel like working in the art world or doing something that's social justice oriented like there is kind of this um, a religious angle that I feel like most people take because they don't want I mean there's so much religious trauma and so people don't want to bring that up for anyone and so like you know you're not supposed to talk about religion you're not really supposed to bring it up and I think especially on the west coast spirituality is a little bit more acceptable but I always have really appreciated how we're able to just so freely talk about religion and God and it's not something that we have to tiptoe around because it is such a big part of us but I do feel like in so many of these other spaces that we're both in it's like something that we have to really tread a cautious line on yeah definitely yeah and I also want to bring up this other intersection that we share around relationship to the divine feminine yeah and um, I'm just remembering you know I have a project feminism all night which is um this educational project around the intersection of spirituality and justice and bringing different topics around feminism um, from different religious traditions to um, a broader audience. And I remember you just taught such a, I think I was one of my favorite sessions. <laughs> we did our multi-faith feminism all night. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, I would love for you to share a little bit more about what you taught there. Yeah, totally. Um... That was so fun. I love doing that. I actually think about that all the time. Oh, really? That's yeah, I do. Um, because I feel like, again, like I was able to express this part of myself that I don't really feel like I get to do very often. But um, I basically had a story time for my session at Feminism All Night a couple of years ago where I told the story of this woman whose name is Tahere, who's one of the first earliest believers in the Baha'i faith and she is often said to be the first woman to be a Baha'i and um, her story is really interesting um, I did my thesis when I was an undergrad like I wrote my thesis based off of the story of her life and her incarceration because she was actually the first woman to be incarcerated by the Persian Empire um, and so there's all these really really beautiful interesting intersections around her life and the things that I'm interested in and my kind of spiritual lineage but um 
Tahereh is this woman that was born in her in Iran or in Persia, um, and her father was actually a Quranic scholar. So he was teaching the Quran, and he taught her how to read, which was super rare, because during that time women did not know how to read or write. But he really believed that all of his children should learn how to read the Quran, and so he taught her how to read. And she was really sharp and ended up also being a Quranic scholar. And there's all these stories about her actually teaching classes on the Quran to rooms full of men from behind a curtain or behind a veil because it was improper during that time for women and men to be in public in situations like that. And so, um, you know, obviously that ended up getting her in trouble and then she was incarcerated because of it. Um, but there's this really amazing story about how when she was incarcerated, she wanted to write her poetry and write letters to her family members. Um, but you know, they, at the time there was no infrastructure for like a woman's prison that she was in. So she was actually just in like a guest bedroom at one of the army generals homes and they like locked the door. So it was kind of this like Cinderella imagery, you know? Or is it Rapunzel? Whichever one is, like, yeah. locked away in a castle. I can't remember which one. Um, I think it's Rapunzel. But, um, yeah, with her hair. With her hair, yeah. So there's this story where Tahere, like, um, really wants to write. And so she takes the, um, she takes, like, the pigment from her tea and the food that they gave her. And she uses, like, a small reed from her bath mat and breaks it off and uses that as a quill and, like, her tea and the different food that she was given as ink. And that's what she uses to, like, write her letters and her poetry. And so um, I think it's really, it's a super important story because growing up as a Baha'i, like, I I learned that story about Tahari, but as I was working on my thesis and sharing it with other Baha'is, um, it's something that no no one knew that story. There's kind of this other story about her um, that kind of takes center stage because it's a little bit more dramatic, but it's this story where she um, like walks into the room at this um, conference in, I can't remember what city it's in, but um, she walks into this conference and it's a room full of men. And because it's just so, um, yeah, still very, like, during this time where it's not typical for women and men to be taking up space in the public realm together. She walks into this room, and she doesn't have her hair covered. Like, she doesn't have a scarf on her hair. And this, one of the men in the room um, is so taken aback by it, where he takes out his sword, and he slits his own throat after seeing her. (laughs) And um, so that's kind of the story that... I love when they go for themselves and I know, (laughs) yeah, seriously. It's a story that is the most common in the Baha'i community that we learned about Tahere. And as I was learning more about her life and how smart she was, and I was reading her poetry and how resourceful she was during her time incarcerated, I actually felt so angry because I was like, wow, we really only know this story about this woman through the perspective of this man who slit his own throat. But we don't know, we don't learn anything about her from that story, except for that she showed up to this conference without her hair covered, which is so... um, so small in comparison to her life's work, which I think is a really nice segue into what's happening in Iran right now and how so much of the narrative around the death of Masa Amini and what the other women in the region are fighting for, it kind of starts off as this conversation about the hijab or the headscarf, but it's so much deeper than that and it's about so much more. And I'm just really excited for us as a world to kind of get past the hijab and get to know the really amazing work and activism and bravery of the women in the region outside of this piece of cloth, like the headscarf, where it's like always kind of been this impetus for conversation. But I feel like in the West, we very rarely go much deeper than that. But there's so much more really amazing work and movement that's happening over there around feminism and women's rights that I'm just really excited for us to um to talk more about in in the west yeah definitely and I feel like there's always this narrative of like oh everything's so bad over there I mean not just in Iran but the whole Middle East region and then it's like well we need to go intervene and yeah you know bring and I see this sometimes you know part of the dynamic that happens is that 
um, people in the region because they're, I actually recently read that the Middle East is one of the most anti-Western regions in the world. Yeah. Which obviously makes sense. Totally. But sometimes, right, it's like when things are coming kind of from the West, there's such a like anti-Western sentiment and when they attach like Western kind of infiltration with like feminism, mm-hmm. then they're like, well, we reject feminism. And then they're <laughs> like, well, that's not fully the circle because yeah. actually feminism was very deep in the region. Totally. And, as you're yeah. saying. And I, and I think that there's so much work there to uncover and to uplift and to fight against all that repression around um, the wisdom that so many women there carry and hold and have been fighting for generations, you right, for yeah. their right to speak and be heard. And um, I mean, and historically we see that with all these different women who were um, leaders, right? And, and we've kind of just wiped them away from our consciousness, you totally. know? And, yeah it's heartbreaking it's so painful yeah it really is it was really interesting working on my thesis about Tahere because I always grew up thinking of her as this central figure to the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i history and narrative but um as I was doing my research on her I actually found so many books in my university library about Middle Eastern feminism about women writers in the region the history of Iranian literature through the lens of women that attribute her to being one of the first women writers in the region and that really kind of made me take a step back and it made me feel really hopeful and optimistic that um that the work is out there and it's you know I kind of have this thing I don't know if I've spoken to you about it but I have this thing where I think that especially on social media I always hear no one talks about this or why doesn't anyone (laughs) talk about that like about any like you can take any kind of like social justice issue and be like well no one talks about this but I think that um we're kind of at this point where there's definitely someone talking about like blank like whatever you want to fill in the blank there's definitely people talking about it you just have to find those people yeah you know and I think that there is something to say about how maybe certain people aren't amplified more than others but I think that I really want us to get out of the habit of saying no one's talking like no one's talking about feminism, no one's talking about Tahari, no one's talking about Baha'is, because right. it's like people are. I'm talking about Baha'is. You're talking about Baha'is. Other people are talking about all these different things that are happening, and maybe it's not making like the mainstream headlines. But I think it's more begging for this reorientation that we have to like just generally going deeper and doing more independent investigation versus just kind of taking what we're spoon-fed. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think, you know, we've all been fed so much misinformation about everyone. (laughs) So really, it is, you know, I think as you grow up and as you age, it's like taking that responsibility to say, like, I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to seek, I'm going to learn, I'm going to meet people of different identities. I'm going to go to Abrahamic House. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, go to the Abrahamic House in D.C., you guys. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but like learn about things that I either did not learn about or I learned about, but I learned about it from a very skewed Mm. way that misconstructed and it wasn't really even in relationship with those people who were practicing that faith or of that identity. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've learned so much about Judaism from our friendship and Jewish thought and Jewish mysticism and feminism and even just generally, like, witnessing your relationship to the divine feminism and your spiritual practice. It's really inspiring, and you're so dedicated, and I feel like you really, like, you know, deserve that title of a devotee. That's what I think of when I think of you. Like, you're definitely a devotee. Wow, I love that. That's, like, higher than getting onto, like, 30 under, 30 or something for Forbes. I got the title of devotee. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're a devotee. (laughs) The highest inspiration. And, you know, I think that... um, Upside down, yeah. Oh, let me fix my mic. Um, I got so excited and <laughs> like, yes, God. But I think, yeah, one of the things that I think is so hard and so challenging is I feel that I am so rooted in spiritual traditions of the Middle East and, um, and they're Jewish, right? I mean, they're not just Jewish. They're like, I really believe in the multi-religiosity of the region, but, um, yeah, I think it's just so sad. And I mean, Judaism has its own kind of situation going on but like in the whole region it's like 
there's so much erasure and oppression of people of different faith um, and and what is that road what is that path that we get to really celebrate our diverse religious traditions mm -hmm. and and really understand that like okay you're Baha'i and you have as much say to the region and as much connection as someone who's Muslim right like just yeah. because they're like the dominant religion doesn't mean that like that takes anything away from your direct relationship and you know I feel the same way as being Jewish and being from you know all these different lands from Syria from Iraq it's like that's been a process for me of like learning that like I can trust my own wisdom that, that comes through my body that comes from my lineage and totally. I don't have to always hear the noise that other people are saying about what's true about yeah. my identity but actually like yeah I mean, I feel like as a Jewish person, it's kind of the opposite where it's like everyone's talking about, <laughs> you know, yeah. no one's saying like, no one's talking about Jewish people because that's just not. But I do think that no one really is talking about Jewish people from the region and there's so much erasure to the Mizrahi experience. And I mean, I've been thinking a lot about something you told me a couple of weeks ago about how Baghdad used to be what, like 60% Jewish? 40% Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. Sorry, misinformation. Yeah, like, you're like, wow, it's so edit, Jewish. Edit that out. <laughs> yeah. 40% Jewish, and now there's, like, barely any Jewish families yeah. left. And I think especially for me, like, obviously, as a Palestinian person and as an Iranian person, totally, like, there's so much. Even being, like, being Persian in L.A., and then there's kind of, like, the Persian Jewish community in L.A., and, like, people just... I feel like other people from the region are just kind of like, oh yeah, there's a lot of Persian Jews here, but don't even think about like why, yeah. <laughs> why they're all here and like how they all, they fled here. Like they didn't yeah. just like decide that they really wanted to live in LA. Like so many of the Jewish people from the countries that, you know, we're from and that our, our neighbors are from were fleeing really extreme violent persecution. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't hear people talking about that, <laughs> except for you. And I think that that's something that you, that intimidates people about you a lot of yeah. the time is that they're not, um, I don't want to say they're not ready to hear it because I think that it's just a truth and that yeah. it might be a hard truth. It might be a hard pill for people to swallow, but there is so much reckoning that people in the countries and in the regions that we're from have to do around the way that they have treated religious minorities in the past. Definitely. And actually, you know, I think this is part of the thinking that I've been developing recently where I feel like so much of our spirit, like there's a reason why so many spiritual traditions are birthed in that region. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there's something about the fertility of the land and, you know, not just physically, but spiritually. It's such mm -hmm. a spiritually fertile place. It is the land of mystics, of poets, of people yeah. who are visioning and, prophecy in all these different ways and I think that in order to be in that spiritual space you have to have a certain mind a certain type of mind I call it the mystic mind that's like able to handle multiplicity and complexity and, and able to like not just think in a very linear space and I think one of the things that I've been really seeing is with colonization westernization violence trauma all these different things our minds literally get so narrow that we can only see one thing mm -hmm. we can only think one thing at a time we can only see like this identity is this mm -hmm. and that identity is that and we're yeah. thinking in these very binary identity mm -hmm. ways around like what it means to be a jewish person what it means to be a baha'i person like mm -hmm. all of these different definitions that um that really challenge our minds when we're like actually like mm -hmm. how about we enter that multiplicity and, and part of i think for me it's like the way forward in our region is through learning how do we hold multiple traumas because there's been so many people who've been oppressed so many people who've been traumatized like so many different levels so many different systems of oppression yeah. and you know they're all kind of intersecting mm -hmm. um and we're really gonna have to learn how to hold them all yeah. <laughs> together because totally. just playing these games around like well this is worse and this is better this mm -hmm. is that it's like that's not getting us far totally or trying to protect like that one identity where it's like we're seeing each other as separate and, you know, maybe you can see, like, yeah, there's other religions here, but I have to protect mine. Yeah. Or I have to protect my ethnic group, or I have to protect my thing, like, whatever it is. And it really reminds me of the talk that you gave about militarization and mysticism and, like, that addiction that can never be um, 
like it can never be met like that yeah. craving that can never be met where it's like you want to protect this thing so hard but you're just never going to feel like it's protective if that's the perspective that you're coming from right because you're always in defense mode yeah like, anything you're like i'm gonna fend this i'm gonna fend that and you're like when do you rest like, yeah is there a moment where we can just pause there and like learn to see other groups of people who are also yeah um, and that you know then it comes back to just that spiritual practice because I don't think it's possible to do that without having this understanding that that there is something bigger of having this devotional aspect that leads you into that service work of you know of getting outside of just your own personal experience and realizing the collective reality um, that is full of so many things you know yeah totally and really realizing that especially through people like you and me, that it is possible to hold space for all of that. You know, yeah. we, we do that every single day. And so I don't think it's too much to ask our peers and our our neighbors and our friends to do the same thing. I know. And actually, I remember one of my favorite times we hung out in Abrahamic house. It was so fun. You were just a room away. We had that. We ended up having like a five hour conversation about race and our identities across the world <laughs> and how our identities would be perceived in different places yeah. like in different settings and yeah. it is quite complex especially because both of us carry such a unique intersection of so many different identities yeah so it's like which part of you is coming out more and which place it kind of depends on where you're at yeah you know totally um and yeah, I think there's something so beautiful to get to share. I mean, we all each have our own journeys, but like to just share that intersection of complexity. Yeah, totally. And yeah, and get to do that with so much love and care and yeah, um, tenderness, tenderness and joy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Aww. Well, thank you so much, Maya, for coming yeah. on my podcast. This was such a treat to have you. Oh, I feel like so we've great. had so many conversations about all these things, just one on one, and it's so nice to get to bring this into a more public sphere yeah totally i'm so happy thanks to everyone for listening yeah i'm curious before we close if there's anything else that you didn't share that you wanted to say or yeah i mean i think that like you know both of us are doing really important work and both of our perspectives are so important and i think that you know, there's a lot of criticism especially that you get in the work that you're doing around jewishness from both your Jewish community and then also the Arab community through the anti-Semitism that's so rife. And I just really appreciate the work that you do around that, but then even extending that to including someone like me, who, you know, I'm even outside of your like Venn diagrams of complex identities and it just means a lot to me. Yeah, oh my gosh, it means so much to me too. (laughs) I really, yeah, I really value you as a friend and Mm. Yeah, I feel like, I think I said this on an Instagram post one time. <laughs> Everyone knows you because I was talking on my Instagram stories. And I'm like, yeah, uh, our friendship is one of the biggest gifts I got in LA. So. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And just one last question. If people want to follow up with you, follow your work, yeah. how do they find you? If you want to just share your Instagram or your website. Yeah, my Instagram is Maya June, M-A-Y-A-J-U-N-E. And then my website is in my bio, but it's my full name. It's just mayajunemansoor.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Maya, for coming and joining us for Hadar's Web. Yay, thank you.